Bibles to Paul's letter, first letter to the Thessalonians. We continue our study in this letter this morning. We pick it up in chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. Here in the second half of his letter, Paul is uh, addressing uh, some issues of concern that had come up in this uh, young church. And uh, apparently there was concern about some believers in the church who had passed away. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's own words, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. This is the word of God to us. Thanks. There are many people who uh, believe that the Bible has nothing of relevance to say to us in the, mo- the modern world. But I just say they haven't read it. I mean, just think of it. Last week in the first half of First Thessalonians chapter 4, we dealt with the subject of sex. And this week, in the second half of that same chapter, we're looking at the subject of death. Sex and death. You talk about relevance. I mean, you can't live in America without thinking of the one, and you can't be a human being without thinking of the other. In fact, the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard described our ability as human beings to consider our own death as that which distinguishes us from all other animals. Think about that. Now, many wish that weren't so. Uh, One poet put it like this. The tin toys of the hawker move on the pavements inch by inch, not knowing they are wound up. It is better to be so than to be like us, wound up and while running down to know. To know that all our lives we are mortal creatures destined to die. Perhaps that's why death is not something that's talked about too much in our culture. And as it's often observed, we're the opposite of the Victorians in this regard. They seem to have a morbid fascination with death, but almost never spoke about sex. And our culture has an obsession with sex, while death is the great unmentionable. Even in the Christian community, books on sex are a dime a dozen. But death, well, it just doesn't seem to sell well. We deny it. We spend our lives trying to prevent it. And somehow we're always surprised when it happens. About the only person in our popular culture that I can think of who dares to talk about death is Woody Allen. I've always liked his comment about immortality. Some people try to achieve immortality through their offspring or through their works. He said, I prefer to achieve immortality by not dying. But we all know. That won't happen. Barring the return of Christ, we will all die. And if you've never thought much about death, I assure you, you will before your life is through. And what will, mean, what will death mean for you? 
Well, in the Greek world of the Thessalonians, in which Paul ministered, uh, some did believe in an afterlife, but those who did were confined primarily to the philosophical schools. In the common paganism of the day, death was most often viewed simply as a sleep, a sleep from which there would be no awakening. Now, one Greek writer put it like this. The sun can set and rise again, but once our brief light sets, there is one unending night to be slept through. And this echoes the word spoken by Job in the midst of his darkest despair. At least there is hope for a tree. If it is cut down, it will sprout again and its new shoots will not fail. Its roots may grow old in the ground and its stump die in the soil. Yet at the scent of water, it will bud and put forth shoots like a plant. But man dies and is laid low. He breathes his last and is no more. As water disappears from the sea or a riverbed becomes parched and dry, so man lies down and does not rise. Till the heavens are no more, men will not awake or be roused from their sleep. And below the Christian veneer of our Western culture, I think this way of thinking is becoming more and more widespread. As secularism becomes our official creed, we move closer to this pre-Christian conception of death, Wrapped, of course, in the mantle of scientific respectability, Uh, Bertrand Russell, the Cambridge philosopher, expressed this modern view succinctly. He says, I believe that when I die, I rot. But even this says too much. For you see, after death, there will be no I to rot. Total extinction is more accurate. Russell realized this. He speaks of the night of nothingness. There is darkness without And when I die, there will be darkness within. There is no splendor, no vastness anywhere. Only triviality for a moment. And then nothing. Nothing. There seems to be no alternative for those who have given up on the old-fashioned notion of the, the soul. Instead, they think of the human person as merely a physical structure, an evolutionary product of matter plus time plus chance plus nothing. And the personality of the self is simply a function of the activities of the brain. When the EEG tells us that the brain waves have ceased, you are no more. It's that simple. Hopes are for the living. The dead are without hope. That was written by the poet Theocritus in the third century before Christ. How modern these Greeks were. And with such a view of death, at the loss of a loved one, all that the average pagan of the Greek world could do was to mourn. One uh, papyrus letter from the second century A.D. gives uh, vivid evidence of this. It was a message of condolence written by an Egyptian woman named Irene. It was addressed to a bereaved couple who had lost a son. And in this letter, Irene shares her friend's grief. For she had suffered a similar bereavement herself. I sorrowed and wept over your dear departed one as I wept over my Didymus, she wrote. But really, there is nothing one can do in the face of such things. So please comfort one another. Farewell. Farewell. Comfort each other. Comfort each other with what? That's my question. What hope is there in the face of death? 
Paul tells his Thessalonian brothers and sisters in the church that there is hope. He writes, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. And Paul comes to the Thessalonians. He comes to us with words of hope, words of encouragement in the face of death itself. But I want you to notice from what Paul writes here. For Paul, death is still not a pleasant subject. No, though we're not to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope, this is not to say that, that we can face death with no grief at all. And I think it's important to see that there are two kinds of grief. First, there's the grief that comes with the sense of separation, the rupture of relationship, the loss that is felt in one's own life at the death of a loved one. This is real. This is natural. And even Jesus felt this kind of grief at the loss of his friend Lazarus. We read in John 11, Jesus wept. When he came to Lazarus's tomb, these were tears of sadness, tears of anger at the toll of sin upon this fallen world in which we live, in which death still reigns. But there's another kind of grief, the grief that is a lament for the person who dies, the grief over the fact that that person has been cut off from the enjoyments and the opportunities of life. And Paul is saying here that though we as Christians may grieve for ourselves when we lose a loved one, Paul encourages us that we need not grieve for the Christian believer when that person dies. For them, you see, the experiences of life are not lost, nor are they over. They have a future and a hope. And we shall see them again. But how can Paul say that? On what grounds can he make that claim? Often you hear people say when when someone dies, well, at least they're in a better place. But are they? How do they know that? Surely the thought must enter our heads from time to time, but perhaps that might not be the case. I know Woody Allen has said he doesn't fear dying. He just doesn't want to be there when it happens. But who hasn't had some disquieting thoughts, some fear at the idea of taking that step into the great unknown that is death? Now, why is that? Again, the Greek philosopher, this time Epicurus, gave a very revealing answer. He says, what men fear is not that death is annihilation, but that it is not Annihilation. I think of Hamlet's hesitations as in his despair, he reflects on what death might mean for him to die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream. Ah, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. He thinks of that dread of something after death that makes us rather bear those ills we have than to fly to others we know not of. Who knows what will happen after we shuffle off this mortal coil? What dreams may come? So how can Paul provide comfort and encouragement to us as we face the prospect of death? He can comfort us by teaching us to look at death in the light of the gospel, the gospel, 
The gospel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his return in glory. For Paul says to us first that the resurrection of Christ provides the grounds of our hope. And second, that the return of Christ provides the goal of our hope. The resurrection and return of Jesus Christ. You see, these are acts of God in real history. But they're events that that transcend ordinary history. They're they're divine invasions into the everyday world of traffic jams and dirty laundry and the six o'clock news. And these transcendent events, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his return in glory, they allow us to look back in faith and so to look forward in hope. So let's look then first at the resurrection of Christ as the ground of our hope. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. Now again, we live in a scientific age. And the achievements of science seem to dominate our lives. But has the scientific community made any significant progress in our understanding of death? Now, they they may have helped us understand the process of dying. But not what happens after. No, not at all. Death remains a mystery. Even with all the technological sophistication at our fingertips, with CAT scans and magnetic resonance imaging and fiber optics and whatever, we still have no means of monitoring the world beyond. Empirical science has no answers. The afterlife, if there is one, remains unobservable. In fact, it is as unknown to us as the new world was to the Europeans before Columbus. It remains the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns, as Hamlet describes it. Now, there are stories about such a country, stories deep within the ancient mythologies of all civilizations, stories uh, of people who've been pronounced brain dead, but who claim to have seen some bright light at the end of a tunnel. But we have no certainty What sure grounds do we have that such a place even exists if only someone could go there, really go there, and return to us? But you see, someone has. Verse 14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. It is an undiscovered country no more, you see. The resurrection of Jesus has inaugurated a new age in the exploration of the afterlife. Death has been conquered and its power over us has been destroyed forever. Jesus died and rose again. And Paul is assured that Jesus' experience can be ours too. For Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. You see, as Christians, we belong to Jesus Christ. Our faith binds us to him. We are in Christ, Paul says. What is true of him becomes true of us. So Paul can say, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. His resurrection, you see, was just the beginning. It was, he was the first of many more to follow. 
This, you see, is the ground of the Christian's hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. So we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So I ask you, do you want to be grounded in hope? Again, not the vague, groundless hope of the person who somehow thinks that surely everyone who dies must wake up on the other side perfectly happy. No, do you have a hope that is grounded in truth? Not just a kind of naive wish. Now, I could say to you, well, then simply believe that Jesus died and rose again. Simply believe that Jesus died and rose again. But I know, you see, that if that statement is simply given a nod of intellectual assent, it will provide you no real comfort when your time of testing comes. You know, I spend time in hospitals from time to time, and, and I realize that these mere words, Jesus died and rose again, would be meaningless to many people there. These words become words of hope. Only for those who know the risen Savior to which they refer. When you're lying on your deathbed, you see mere nominal Christianity will do you no good. It will do you no good. I think of the experience of John Bateman. He describes his thoughts before an operation in a poem entitled Before the Anesthetic or A Real Fright. He's lying in a hospital in Oxford, England. He's listening to the tolling of the bells of St. Giles Church. Intolerably sad, profound. St. Giles bells ringing all round. Swing up and give me hope of life. Swing down and plunge the surgeon's knife. I, breathing for a moment, see death wing himself away from me and think, as on this bed I lie, is it extinction when I die? St. Giles Bells are asking now, Hast thou known the Lord? Hast thou? St. Giles Bells, they richly ring, And was that Lord our Christ, the King? St. Giles Bells, they hear me call, I never knew the Lord at all. And in the poem, he goes on to speak of a, a vague kind of belief in God that he had simply because he went to church. And he says, now lying in the gathering mist, I know that Lord did not exist. Now, lest this I should cease to be, come real Lord, come quick to me, almighty Savior, had I faith, there'd be no fights with kindly death. If you want to be grounded in a real Solid hope. Do you want to have peace when you come face to face with death? Then I tell you, grow in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to Him in faith. Claim His death on the cross as the sacrifice for your sin. Experience the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. Experience the power of His risen life. Listen to His Word made alive by the Spirit. Follow His leading in your life. Speak to Him in prayer. And then you will have confidence that you will join with Him in His resurrection. You will have confidence that though you don't know what lies on the other side of death, you do know that Jesus Christ is there waiting to receive you to Himself. 
That's the confidence that you can have as a believer. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He asks. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the certain ground of our hope. Now, as we move on in the passage to verses 15 to 17, Paul focuses on a second area, the return of Christ as the goal of our hope. Now, to appreciate what Paul tells us here, I think we must first understand the distinctiveness of a Christian view of history. Human history doesn't just go on in endless cycles as many uh, Eastern religions believe, nor does it simply dissolve into nothingness with the, the heat death of the sun, as the scientific materialist would have it. According to the Bible, human history is moving to a conclusion. It moves with a purpose toward a goal, and history has meaning. It is guided by the hand of God, and He will bring it to its appointed end. The Bible teaches us that the God who created is also the God who restores. And the Bible, moving from Genesis to Revelation, is the story of paradise lost, paradise regained. And the goal of history is not just some fusion of all into one and one into all. No, the goal of history is the redemption of God's creation, a new heaven and a new earth, the kingdom of God come to earth. As the closing of the book of Revelation tells us, our God will bring about a new world in which He will dwell personally with His people. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things will have passed away. And he describes it there as a, a community of people, a city, a new Jerusalem, in which men and women will live together in peace and joy and love in the presence of God. This is what the return of Christ means. The final establishment of God's rule in God's world. Now, Paul had told these new believers in Thessalonica about this coming of Christ and this new world that he would bring. They'd grown excited about it. They looked forward to that great day with joy. But in the meantime, it seems some of their members had died. And they began to wonder if those departed members would somehow miss out when the Lord returns. And Paul's emphatic answer is no. Verse 15, according to the Lord's own word, and here Paul is probably referring to those words of Jesus passed on by the apostles that have come to us in the Gospels. According to the Lord's own words, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Those believers who have died will be at no disadvantage when Christ returns. For he will bring all those who belong to him, whether living or deceased, together to be with him forever. Now, I want you to notice three things that are said here about the coming of Christ. First, he says the coming of Christ will be personal. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven. This is not the coming of an idea or a new form of government or a new way of life. It's the coming of Christ himself. Now, I don't know how this will happen. Paul is using the language of our experience to describe something that is beyond our experience. 
I don't know how Jesus will appear out of the heavenly dimension in which he now exists and make himself known in the world. But somehow, in the power of God, it will happen. And just as surely as he once came as a carpenter, so Jesus himself will come again as a king. The coming of Christ will be personal. And second, the coming of Christ will be triumphant. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. And Paul is using the imagery here, which in the words of John Calvin, give a brief glimpse of the magnificent, magnificent and venerable appearance of the great judge. The loud command, perhaps as a rebuke of the forces of evil. The voice of the archangel, the hosts of heaven joining in this entourage. The trumpet call, a familiar Old Testament image associated with the appearance of God, or particularly His appearance as the King of heaven and earth. And these sounds serve as a summons and as an alert, a warning of action about to commence, a call to readiness, arousing even the dead in their tombs. The Lord of lords and King of kings will come in triumph. And third, the coming of Christ will be corporate. That is, it will bring together all of God's people. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then all who are left will join them in meeting the Lord in the air. This is... What is commonly known as the rapture. That's a term which comes from the Latin word for being caught up, snatched up in verse 17. This is the rapture of the church. Now, in the last 150 years or so, many Christians have come to believe that when this rapture of Christians occurs, those who meet the Lord in the air will simply continue up with him. And will be held in heaven while a period of great tribulation occurs on the earth. And after that, they will come with the Lord when he returns finally to establish his kingdom on earth. This is known as the pre-tribulational rapture view for obvious reasons. Now, this view is common among evangelical Christians in this country, including the evangelical free church. In this view, Christ actually comes twice, once for his church and then a second time with his church. As I said, this is very popular, but I I myself prefer another way of understanding what Paul is saying here. That is that that here he's continuing the imagery of triumph by picturing the protocol to be followed upon the arrival of a visiting dignitary in a city in Hellenistic times. The leading citizens of the city would go out to meet him and then escort him into the town. In fact, the word used to describe this kind of meeting, the apantasis, is the same one that Paul uses here. And this is similar to the way that uh, Paul himself was met by the Christians of Rome who went several miles outside the city to, to meet him and then escorted him back into the city of Rome in Acts 28:15. Again, using the same Greek word to describe it. A similar occurrence of this word is found in Jesus' parable of the ten virgins. The women went out to meet the bridegroom and they escort him into the wedding feast. And so with this understanding, this rapture of the church is a vivid picture of the glorious welcome Christ will receive as the King of Kings when he comes to gather his people and establish his kingdom. But another question arises from these verses. 
This uh, passage speaks of those who had died being joined with Jesus at the time of his return. But what about their condition before he returns? This is the question of the so-called intermediate state. What is the state of believers during the time between their death and their resurrection that takes place at the return of Christ? Well, the New Testament speaks with two voices on this subject that don't always seem to be in harmony. Are the dead in Christ in some form of unconscious soul sleep until the resurrection of the body? Or is the resurrection of the body almost irrelevant because the believer who dies is already fully and completely with the Lord? I think the truth lies somewhere between. I don't think the New Testament teaches soul sleep, that the soul of the believer is simply asleep until Christ returns. Paul does speak of those who sleep here, but that's simply a, a common way of speaking of death as it is today. And sleep is an entirely appropriate metaphor describing the motionless of the dead body. But it doesn't necessarily imply anything about the state of a person's soul. But more importantly, you see, Paul speaks elsewhere of his desire to depart and depart from this body and, and to be with Christ, he says, which is better by far, as we read in, in Philippians chapter one. And then Jesus say to the penitent thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And again, Paul was convinced of the indestructible nature of the relationship of the believer with the Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Not even death itself, he says in Romans 8. And so on the basis of these texts and others, I believe that when a believer dies, he or she is immediately in a state of intense intimacy with the Lord, which certainly will be a cause of great joy. Great joy. But on the other hand, as happy as this state may be, it is still not the final state. It's not the completed state of our salvation. And that comes only when the body itself has been renewed at the time of the resurrection and the whole of creation is restored in a new heaven and a new earth. You see, the resurrection renews that, that social dimension of our lives, joining together all of God's people. And only this corporate condition is fitting for that final state of blessedness. And that's why the return of Christ can be seen as the goal of our hope. For that great event will usher in the fulfillment of the saving purposes of God. And until then, those who have passed away remain the dead in Christ. And only when Christ returns in glory will the, the Lord redeem all of his creation and bring about a world in which there will be no more death. No more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. A world in which the present division between heaven and earth will be overcome. And the Lord will dwell with his people forever. And you see, it will be a world in which we will be set free from ever, forever from these remaining effects of sin. We'll be able to, to love God with all our heart, soul, strength and mind. We'll be able to love our neighbors as ourselves. We'll be able to see Jesus in all his glory. It will be a world of truth and justice and righteousness. It will be a world of deep and rich relationships of love, such as we can only get the faintest glimpse in this life. This is the goal of our hope. And what a wonderful hope it is. These are comforting words. These are encouraging words. These words give us a hope for the future. But I want you to see here this morning that they can only do this. 
to the extent that we can look back in faith on the past. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we can believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. You see, without this faith, there seems to be little possibility of real comfort. This came to my attention a while back. I I attended a meeting at Annandale High School. During that year, there had been several suicides involving students of the school. And the principal, rightly, was very concerned. And one of his responses to this problem was to hold a class on death and dying in the school. But I wondered, what sort of encouraging words could they possibly give if they restricted themselves to the secular world, the natural world, the world of the scientist, looking through his microscope or his telescope? What can the secular world tell us about death and dying that can give us any hope? Could they say any more than Bertrand Russell? That when you die, you rot. Would their condolences be like those found in that papyrus letter 2,000 years ago? Really, there is nothing no one can do in the face of such things. So please comfort each other. Or more recently, just last week, I was asked by someone here in the church to suggest some words to put on an Internet memorial page for someone who wasn't a Christian whose family member had died. What words of comfort could I give? Yes, entrust your loved one to the hands of him who judges justly. But that isn't necessarily a comforting thought. In the light of the way that we have all lived. You see, I'm afraid our world can never know true comfort in death until it knows him who conquered death, him who has saved us from our sin. For notice carefully to whom these words of Paul, these comforting words apply. They are to believers. If we believe, verse 14, those who have fallen asleep in him, verse 14, the dead in Christ, verse 16. These are comforting words to those who, Who know Christ. Again, Paul has no fear of death. In fact, it is in a way attractive to him. He says, I long to depart and to be with Christ. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. But these two go together, you see. Only when you live for Christ can you say to die is gain. Death will not bring us into a loving relationship with one we have spurned in this life. If we ignore him now, he will ignore us then. Depart from me, I never knew you, he said. And if we choose to live without him during our brief time on this earthly life, he will consign us to the awful fate of living without him forever. Let me say it plainly. If you enter death to face God, naked and alone, shamefully guilty, with no advocate to plead for you, no sacrifice to cover your sin, no Savior to redeem your life, I can offer no words of comfort to you. Death is nothing but terror. 
T.S. Eliot puts his finger on death's terror in, in the words from his play, Murder in the Cathedral. Behind the face of death, the judgment. And behind the judgment, the void. More horrid than active shapes, shapes of hell. Emptiness, absence, separation from God. The horror of the effortless journey to the empty land, which is no land. Only emptiness, absence, the void where those who were men can no longer turn the mind to distraction, delusion, escape into dreams, pretense. Jesus himself says it even more frightfully. It is an outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Woody Allen was right. Nobody wants to be there when they die. But you will be. You will be. 